Okay, awesome. So I um, am really pumped to have Esperanza Franco here today on the podcast. Um, she is just an awesome, refreshing, like light in the legal profession of how you can have a different kind of presence professionally. And so uh, our conversation, I'm sure, will be a winding, twisting road. Um, you know that we'll just see where we're see where it goes because that's the way life is it just <laughs> you have to see where it goes and the, the second you try to control it, it 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 has other ideas so esperanza i'll turn it over to you to give a, a brief introduction of who you are in words yeah thank you so much patrick um i'm really really happy to be here with you who am i well um that's like a tricky question because I feel like I change my mind every day. But formally, I am a Spanish and U.S. attorney. I'm originally from the Canary Islands, but I um, studied in the U.S. And I'm also a coach for law students. I'm the author of Emotionally Intelligent Lawyers, How to Navigate the Psychological Implications of Becoming a Lawyer. And um, I think I've been an advocate for law students and lawyers' mental health since I interacted with the legal field and I'm all about working remotely and really just embracing who you are in the legal field without having to fit in into um, stereotypes that do not resonate with who you yeah. are really. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, and here, here's the thing about um, kind of a multitude of personalities because you mm -hmm. mentioned it, it's each day. Well, in each moment we are different. So yeah. Uh, outside outside of attorney or a lawyer how would you identify if someone's like who's esperanza not professionally who who are you non professionally yeah. well i think i would probably um feel like an artist in that sense i like writing poetry just spoken word also painting dancing expressing myself through you know, just a creative medium. So I would say, um, and it's funny because for example, this weekend I just signed up for this workshop. Um, and every time that I go to those workshops, when I have to introduce myself and say, I'm an attorney, like literally everybody looks at me like, what the hell is she doing? <laughs> um, especially because I generally show up dressed up like a, you know, 17 year old because I like colors and just sort of, yeah. so it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I would say that I would identify, um, with that a lot. Um, I also like, um, I do practice yoga. Um, I try to meditate. So really just finding presence through, you know, movement and nature is also something that I deeply identify with and emotions. Like, I just like to talk about emotions and feelings and that. Kind what's, of your, what's your, what's your favorite emotion? Uh, okay, um, that's a very tricky question. I don't know if this is considered to be an emotion, but I would say tenderness. So mm. sort of the feeling of something that is not vulnerable, but fragile, but also extremely beautiful and strong, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's like... Uh evokes this feeling of needing to be cared for mm -hmm. right yeah. um needing to be protected in a, in a different way it's the ten tender 
it's not it's the love and care right tender yeah. love and care it's yeah. it's it's supportive of those other elements um tenderness do you think there's a place for tenderness in the legal profession because those yeah. those two things those two things don't yeah. seem to to, to jive yeah, in a traditional definitely. sense i mean this is this is the dilemma right and we have this understanding or we have this belief that vulnerability equates weakness right and something that is too tender or too fragile um can be a liability i honestly don't think um that's true i do think that sometimes you have to protect yourself but i think that you can be a very tender attorney i think that you can be um someone who dares to be vulnerable in front of colleagues and yet that person can also be highly intellectual and highly analytical and a badass attorney you know arguing a case or presenting you know whatever argument before a court so i don't think they're mutually exclusive even though i know um a lot of people uh would say that they are but i personally advocate for the opposite so well in it and actually it might allow you to get deeper into a situation if you have some tenderness yeah exactly i mean or even even someone recently i was talking to someone recently it was like even rage okay like mm -hmm. rage is one of those things for us mindful attorneys right us like empathetic attorneys that were like well i don't want to be enraged but some sometimes you need to you need that right like your client needs to see you get upset like enraged yeah. like yeah. If, if if an outcome is not fair or the system's not fair or you know you have to show your humanness too yeah that that, that doesn't mean some points you're not going to be frustrated so what, yeah. what's your what's what's your favorite like dark side emotion so you said tenderness what's like your say you know that fierce anger slash you know sort of like this warrior fighter like ah you know kind of like how how would i describe it um like a lioness who's protecting you know mm -hmm. um, her cubs in the sense that anger is a very useful emotion because it teaches you when and where you need to set boundaries for example it helps you protect yourself and and your loved ones and in this case it helps you protect your client from whatever attack you know that client um might be facing and something that um i was thinking um about today was how um we have to integrate all of this right we have to and, and i'm really glad that you asked me about what's the darkest you know mm -hmm. like emotion that you like because i think that the point of life is truly integrating that duality of emotions right i mean it's not like oh we know we're just meant to be this like really peaceful attorneys like everything is great and amazing and mm -hmm. rainbows and sunshine because that's not going to happen the world does not work that way if you look mm -hmm. at nature it does not work that way so i think that what we're really trying to do is humanize the complexity mm -hmm. of it all right like mm -hmm. all of those emotions it's a it's a comprehensive thing and and this is the point i think that gets missed is that you know the suggestion of being mindful does not mean that everything's always harmonious yeah. you can you can achieve harmony you can achieve 
to remove suffering, but it is it is omnipresent. It's how you show up in those moments. It's how do you react is very human, but you have to be able to experience that full range of emotions as opposed to being stereotyped or put into a little box in saying like you you as an attorney here are the prescribed accepted five emotions the five behaviors um and that's it you you're outside of that and then it's like you aren't successful you're not intelligent you're you're too emotional right and so it's like you know it kind of sets you up for a situation where you almost feel like you need to deny yourself a part or numb it all Right. And I think yeah, that's exactly. that's that's where the legal profession heads is kind of just like a uh, being numb to it all. Like, yeah. you know, um, numb to injustice, numb to the way it feels for you to have to help someone through a painful experience. You just deny it all. And it's like, in yeah. a sense, you become nothing like this blank slate. <laughs> yeah. And right? I mean, it's it's completely dehumanizing and it can it can be transferred to our personal lives in the sense that I'm sure we've all been through that situation when a friend comes to us and we're just sort of not able to deal with their pain, right? Because maybe we're stressed or maybe we just like, you know, we don't want to deal with it because it's too painful, right? And a lot of the times when people aren't able, you know, to carry or pain it's because they're not able to carry their own pain they've sort of like said you know set up this barrier to say no i'm not going to feel this emotions and you know it's just it, it's almost like creating your own jail where you can't you know feel xyz emotion and you can also connect with someone else who's feeling that emotion so it's it's so limiting that and at the end of the day i think it's so very isolating because Let's just face it. I mean, we're we're going to have a problem. You know, there's going to be a hard situation at some point in our lives because that's how life is. And I'm not trying to to say, you know, to be pessimistic in terms of like something bad is going to happen. No, not at all. But, you know, there's going to be a time where you're going to feel sad. There's going to be a time where you might have an, an existential crisis. There's going to be a time where you might lose someone you love. So if you're not open to that pain, then you're not going to allow yourself to process it and you're not going to be able to be there for the the people you love who are going through that. Mm. So it's tricky, you know, because it not only has, so what happens in the legal field also happens in our personal lives. And the problem with the legal field is that we're not allowed to feel these things at all. It's almost like the profession. It's almost like in law school, you were taught, Hey, like, you know, emotions are not allowed because emotions cloud, you know, rational thinking, which is actually a belief that used to, you know, um, be present in the past. And now we know with neuroscience and like psychology that that's not true. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that somehow they're it's uh, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. what logic and reasoning is diametrically opposed to emotion. Yeah. And, and feeling and, yeah. and you, you can't the motion and feeling just clouds judgment it, yeah. it clouds your ability to be engage in objectivity yeah and to go back to integration 
that's the problem. Like we have to choose one side. We can't coexist with the two, right? Again, you can be highly rational, but you can also be highly emotional. Like they don't have to, you know, fight with each other, but it's almost like our brain is designed to have to pick one side. When in reality, you know, if you think about it, if we didn't experience sadness, how would we tell the difference, you know, with happiness? Because everything would be like on this, like on this line, right? Everything would be sort of neutral and average. We wouldn't be able to tell, you know, the difference. And it's that difference that allow us, you know, to go to those extremes and really feel an emotion and really feel joy, you know, and, and, and cry when you're sad. So it's, it's almost like you have to be willing to experience, um, you know, the good and the bad in order to be alive. Otherwise, you're just numb and you, yes, you might stay in this protective shell, but you're not accessing. Um, you're not, you're not living in it. You're actually not. And this is one of the things too, you're not really practicing, exactly. you know, and what, it, and what is a practice? What it, the, the, the thing about, let's say yoga practice, okay, mm -hmm. by way of example, most practicing happens outside of the, off the mat, right? Yeah, yeah. Mo oh, most yeah. most yoga has nothing to do with flexibility, or exactly. how you how you bend your body. It's how you bend your mind and how you show up. It's it's even like the practice of law. Really, it's all these other things external to the the thing you're practicing. You know, the mm -hmm. the law itself. When you're writing yeah. that brief, when you're advocating for your client, when you're doing client intake, it's all the stuff you're doing outside of it. Yeah, all of that work that informs what happens within the work. Yeah, and so and so one of my favorite things about your journey, your story, your narrative, is that you started asking these questions and thinking this way while still in law school. Yeah, and so and so the the insight there is what drove you to that discovery at that point in time? Yeah. Well, I just think that everything that happens in the legal field starts in law school. Like it's almost like the seed is there, right? The, the highly perfectionist lawyer, the productive 24 seven, never gets sick lawyer. That's also present in, in law school. If you go back to your one year, you're going to see that the highly competitive, right? Cutthroat, it's there. Like all of the stereotypes start in law school. And when you start thinking like a lawyer, that also starts in law school, right? Like the fault finding, the hypothetical negative thinking, the error finding, also the highly competitive thinking, like the adversarial thinking, all of that is part of being a lawyer. And again, you know, I'm not saying like thinking like a lawyer is a bad thing. No, but if you start analyzing, you know, you start thinking like a lawyer once you start law school. And for me, when I was a 1L, I started seeing a lot of pain. You know, I started suffering myself. I started feeling overly obsessive, you know, overly obsessive about, you know, grades and about competition and just in, in really everything in general. And I could also see my colleagues struggle. I mean, we were all so stressed out because there was so much pressure. So this is when I started realizing that, well, there's something, there's something off here. Like why, why is everybody going through this experience? Right? Cause it's not only me, it's like, there's a lot of people. And then 
I, um, one of my friends from law school gave me this law review article from Andy Benjamin and Connie Beck, and they had done a longitudinal study on the impact of legal education, really. And I was like, oh my God, like this data is fucking insane, especially because <laughs> this has been documented since the 70s. What, like, was, was yeah, like, it's not new. This is not, this, this is not new. I think, oh, no. I think part of this, like, uh, attorney well being um and mental health it, it's not this is not a new discovery no, i think no, i think it that gets missed in the conversation is this has been a known thing for a long time so here you are in law school and one of your law school buddies is like hey look at this study yeah. um that it's almost like the bet the worst kept secret right yep. because when, when i was in law school i always found it really odd that when you interacted with attorneys the first thing they would tell you is like this is the worst decision you've ever made right so like here you are you're incurring all the student loan debt you're like working really hard um it's challenging there's a lot of self-sacrifice that happens in law school and here mm -hmm. are people in the profession telling you like you should be miserable <laughs> like me right i'm miserable you should be miserable this is all miserable and why are you doing this to yourself run I just always thought that was so odd and maybe it's because I was, you know, I was just talking with someone the other day It's like in law school and I'm not exceptional, right? Like I, I don't think like I am like somehow exceptional compared to everyone else, but some of the stuff in law school, I was just oblivious to, I didn't, I didn't care. Like I didn't care about grades or what other people were doing or any of that stuff, prestige, maybe because I never have, maybe it's just not my personality. And so like, how did I show up in law school? Like by 3L, I had like long hair, a giant beard. I wore beanies. Like I, I just stepped into like, maybe it didn't matter. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, I felt like outside of the system, so, which brings about a whole other set of problems, right? Like imposter syndrome. Like maybe I don't belong here. Like yeah. may, maybe, um, like this isn't for me. So it's like it, it, even even breaking free outside of kind of the arena, right? Stepping outside of the arena has then its all other set of problems. Yeah. With being an attorney, because you're you have this thought process that plays in your mind of like. Well, now you're not like everyone else. Yeah. But, you know. And the thing in the legal field too is that, and in law school, it's like you have to you have to play the game, right? Because otherwise, you're gonna feel mm. like you're saying like you're not part of it, you don't belong, and this game has really unreasonable rules sometimes. Like, why do you have to be this adversarial, <laughs> maniac, psychotic attorney? <laughs> you know, it's just not. And, you know, another hidden narrative that obviously it's like so common in the legal field is like you have to be this like super productive person who is always doing something because if you have one hour of free time, like, are you crazy? Are you insane? You should be using that hour to do something productive. Like, how can you do that? Right. Like, <laughs> like is this like some sort of like close? It, it, it's like. I don't know how I, I forgot how to say this. What's 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 like sick that? Um, oh my god, what's the name? We'll just have to look. We'll just look it up later. 
Yeah, but it's a really close group, you know. Like a like a cult. Yes, exactly. Like you better like you better you better drink the Kool Aid. Yeah, yeah. We all drink. We all drink the Kool Aid. Yeah, I mean, come on, like you know, it's normal to have like five Red Bulls a day. Why are you whining about it? You know, get used to it. And it's yeah, and and it's I think that if you think differently. Or if you don't fit into that, and if you start questioning it, um, you also start suffering, right? Because you see, you, you can feel that tension. And when you, like, I remember having interviews for law firms, and one of them, I mean, I can't, so I can't remember the exact words, but basically the associate told me this was um, a big law firm in DC. He was basically like, oh, yeah, like, we'll take all of the billable hours that you can give us. Like, you know, we do. And he was just giving me crazy numbers. And I was like, this is insane. It's like, it's, it's an extraction economy. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah. it's just, and, and I mean, I get it in the sense that, okay, like you are like the salaries, you know, are really high, but it was just like the way he was saying it, it was almost like, you're not a person, you're sort of this machine. And to me, that pretty much meant like, what if you have a bad day? Like, what if someone in your family dies? Like, do you just have to like suck it up and like build those 12 hours that day too? Like, is that the type of, you know, culture that the firm has? Because probably, you know, it does. So- um, yeah, I think unfortunately, it's uh, your life comes after many other considerations. Yeah. And so, one of the things I've really been reflecting on and discovering myself is what it what does it mean to be successful? What what does it mean? What does it mean to be productive? And so, I imagine you've probably gone through a similar thing. Is that there's productivity in so much than just work product. And so in your own life, what what do you do that would be considered uh, non unproductive? unproductive. Which, which, you know, an attorney would look at like, let's say someone going and doing pottery, which I've I've done. And it's so fun. It's unproductive. Right. Yeah. Um, or it's like, hey, just spending time sitting in silence for five minutes. Yeah, Many people would say that's unproductive. So what are, what are some things that you do that are unproductive but productive for you? And just one one thing real quick. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things that can happen, especially if you're, you know, a perfectionist or an attorney, you know, like with this productivity narratives, um, is that sometimes you even do certain things in order to be... So you, you might say, okay, I'm going to meditate for five minutes because then I want to be more productive or because I want to, you know, check the list, <laughs> which has happened to me. And sure, um, sure. I went into the sort of like self-improvement journey and there was a point where I was just doing it as another way of proving my worth, right? Mm. Of like, mm. so this can be, this can be tricky in that sense. So that for me, right now in, in this moment i would say that things like um going for a walk just dancing or like watching a show that i like watching asmr 
like on YouTube, like, you know, just drawing or, but, but not even like creating art so that I can say, oh, look what I created. No, just experimenting. So for example, pottery is something so beautiful because you get to experiment with your hands and it's like, you know, it's like, it, it's like this very therapeutic um, technique. So doing- Are you, things, are doing, are doing pottery on the wheel? Look, I did, or no, like, I, I haven't, but this I did like last year. It's a little, oh, yeah. That's so, cool. That's cool. Actually, I, I didn't realize that this was like, this is a podcast. Like people are not going to see the screen, but I was just showing the cup. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not uh, recorded. It's not recorded. We, we, the video uh, doesn't go anywhere. So, okay. um, so, but that was very, that was a very cool mug. Um, but yeah, the, even the process of, yeah, pottery, what, why I like pottery is it looks so simple, mm -hmm. right? When, when you see a master potter make something on a pottery wheel, yeah, man, they make it look so simple. And then you go in, you go and do it for the first time. You're like, this should be so simple. It's clay, water, and a wheel. And you do it, and the first time you're like, oh my gosh. And so you, it's really a practice in just like, you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. Quite honestly, it's, you might have an idea, but the, it's not, you, you have to let go of the expectation that there's going to be an outcome. And so it's even like what you're saying, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing you say is it's almost in choosing these these pursuits not to have anything to show for it in the end okay. that that's not the point the point yeah. isn't isn't to meditate to then in the future be more productive it's to meditate it, it's to just be and and doing it yeah. and allowing yourself not to be good at it right and and another thing that i'm practicing a lot is just doing things that i'm just not you know like allowing myself not to be good at those things because as attorneys and you know, high achievers, we always want to get it right. And we always need to be really good at it. And for me, something that has been so healing has been to just, you know, doing things um, where I'm just like, not good. Like, I <laughs> like I'm just enjoying this time. And, and it's almost like laughing at myself for not, um, you know, being good at it. And I think that I feel like the contrast that that creates in my brain is so healing and so wonderful mm -hmm. because it just takes off all of the pressure. It's like, mm -hmm. wow, I can just be doing this activity without having to put unreasonable expectations on myself. And you're not like scoring yourself, ranking yourself, criticizing yourself. You're just doing. Exactly. You're just, you're just and not even doing, you're just being. And it's really fascinating. So my wife's a yogi, a yoga teacher. Um, is one of her many things she's done in her life. And you know what she would hear a lot of, right? And I'm sure you've heard it is, I can't do yoga because I'm inflexible. Yeah. And really, what you're what you're saying is, yes, you're inflexible, inflexible in terms of the way you think about yourself. Yeah. That that you're this fixed static self. You, you are, to go back to a clay reference, you're already the baked piece of clay. Yeah. But even, but even there, even there is a baked piece of clay, clay can be broken and put back together in some completely other form. 
And so the second we we think we're fixed is really just an opportunity to discover how much more malleable we can be. And yeah. so attorneys, really you'll hear that. you'll hear this like right, like I'm a criminal defense attorney, right? I can't do anything outside of being a criminal defense attorney. No way, no how. But I'd really like to do intellectual property, but I can't do it, right? Well, there's really just an opportunity there for growth. Like you can't yeah. you you can do these things. The only one who's creating these these uh, requirements is yourself. And so totally. and so when people you know law students come to you right because it's it's law students are at this point where they're trying to figure out their own professional identity kind of who they are where do they fit in this where do you how, how do you guide someone to maintain that flexibility i honestly tell them to try as many things as they can and i especially tell them about my story in the sense that I've, you know, I've changed paths. I've done like several things. And the important thing, it's almost like, it's like the most important thing for a lawyer. To me, it's the analytical thinking. It's almost like the legal writing and legal research, because like how many times do you get an issue that you've never heard about? You're going to have to research. Like all the time, gonna, all the, like literally all the time. All the time, like I'm, literally all the time, unless you have like 30 years of, ex of experience, of course, or something like that. But even you might get that one issue that you've never heard of. So for me, like, I always tell them, like, as long as you have, you know, that ability to think critically, you know, and and that curiosity to learn more and and exactly understand what the issue is about and present your arguments in a structured way i think that you can do anything because at the end of the day you can get like you know if you're an attorney who's been a criminal defense attorney for like i don't know um 20 years and then suddenly you want to do ip you like you have transferable skills that's the whole thing about law school yeah. like literally that's what law school sell, you know, like, oh, these are transferable theory versus application. It, and, it is true. It, but it, but it, it is true. I mean, even, even my uncle, he was an attorney. He just retired. He started off. Yeah. in like criminal prosecution with like the drug unit, like DEA, he ended his career in-house counsel for a multinational company. I, I mean, Right. Yeah. And he was a he was an attorney's attorney. Right. Like he that was him. Right. Like he embodied that. And even him like that's that's a career trajectory that I think a lot of a lot of attorneys just seem to ignore or not want to highlight or celebrate. But it's so common. Actually, it's probably the most common thing is that most attorneys, I'm sure if we did a study or there's a study out there, that's like most attorneys, what they start with is not even close to what they, they, totally. they end with at, at all. Even paint, even paint, look at painters, right? Did yeah. Picasso start painting how Picasso ended? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah. But if he's no, kept yeah. painting in the same way that he did right at the beginning of his painting journey as opposed to what he became right like why can't in the legal profession we have this like creativity mindset 
What, what do you think it, it is? What do you do, think it is? Yeah, I think it has to do with a fixed mindset that you were discussing earlier, because we think that we can't change or we can't evolve. It's either, you know, we, cho we chose to do X, Y, Z, you know, thing. And now we're sort of like stuck with that. That's like black or white, you know, thinking, right? And I also think that it has a lot to do with perfectionism because for you to change, you to go from criminal defense to IP means that you're gonna have to be vulnerable in the sense that for some time, you're not gonna you're not gonna be good at it. You're not gonna be perfect at it. You're gonna be learning. You're gonna be in this like growth, you know, stage. And that takes a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability to get to that space, because you know, let's face it. There's that fear of failing. There's that fear of not being good enough. And and especially like you know, oh my god, like you know, you have all of these competitors, right? And going back mm -hmm. to the highly competitive thinking from you know in the legal field, you have all of these competitors who have like forty years of experience. But I'll tell you why. What um, even though you might not have ten years of experience in IP, you're going to have your critical thinking. You're going to have your work ethic. Ethic. You're going to have your strategic thinking. You're going to have. All of those skills that make you a really good attorney and that made you a really good criminal defense attorney. So it's it's I think it's more about dealing with that fear, because in, in reality, you and I know that a criminal defense attorney can become an IP attorney. Oh, sure. There's it's about taking yeah. the steps to do it. Mm. And and going and doing it where you have. Uh convince yourself you don't have the yeah. time to do it. You don't have the time, exactly. Exactly. the capacity, the energy to do it. So, okay, well, I, so this is this is great. I mean, in terms of kind of um, growth and change and what you can become. And so you wrote a book and we're not gonna get into the book because I told you weren't, I was gonna quote the book. But, <laughs> you know, this is, this is uh, what, what inspired you to put all these ideas and thoughts you had into the written form and then share it? Well, honestly, I don't know. It was just a feeling. It was like gut feeling that I had, like I just needed to write it. And it's funny because, so when I was in law school, I wrote my law review note on the psychological impact of legal education. So sort of like lost, the theme was law students mental health. So at that time, you know, I thought about, you know, submitting it for publication, but then there was something in me that was like, no, like, no, this is meant for something bigger. Like I, I felt like, mm, no, also like this was in like 2017. So it wasn't like a hot topic yet. So I was like, oh, they're going to think I'm crazy and like, blah, 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 all this stuff. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had the idea and in four years, I didn't start writing it because I was scared that it like, who the, who the fuck am I to write a book? Like, you know, I'm not like I even thought like, you know, I haven't studied psychology. I mean, it was only after I finished this one year training in emotional intelligence and neuroscience and, you know, mindfulness that I actually felt, you know, like I felt I had the right, which to me all of those years when I could have written, you know, I could have started writing the book and I didn't, I was just in self-sabotage mode. 
I was saying to myself, you know, um, you're not ready enough, like you're not good enough to write this, like you're not a scholar, why? Like, you know, you don't have enough experience. And in reality, like after I finished, I was like, wow. You know, like I had, like I had the knowledge, you know, I had done all of the research. Like I know for a fact that my book is like filled with incredible, you know, like an incredible analysis of empirical research. And, you know, obviously now I feel more confident because I have my editorial reviews from the experts, you know, say that. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, the imposter syndrome yeah. is, is not, you know, as strong um, today. But, you know, I think that for me, it was also a spiritual journey in the sense that I needed to believe in myself and I needed to, mm. even though I felt a lot of fear writing the book and I felt fear before writing it, there was always this sense of like, Espy, you have to do it. Like, this is your mission. It was almost like, it felt like a sole mission to, you know, expose this truth and to bring healing to the legal profession. Like to, I wanted to validate people suffering. I wanted to let them know that they were not alone. And to me, that was more important than my fear. Like, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm sorry, ego. Like, I just don't, I don't have time for you. <laughs> You're checked. Turn the yeah. noise down. Yeah. And so, yeah. It, and you and I message on LinkedIn about this. It's like, uh, like your dharma. Yeah. And so it's yeah. like, you know, a lot of times uh, people are like, you know, your dharma or your purpose, mm -hmm. you know, in a professional sense has to, once again, serve some greater business goal or or big hairy audacious goal like i'm gonna set out to write a book to make a million dollars right yeah. like you know and what you're saying is it's almost like a personal purpose you had yeah. to, to share in other people's suffering which is compassion that yeah. that's the definition of compassion and yeah. so what drove what drove you was uh, uh compassion and in 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 the process you discovered self-compassion. I mean, yeah. that, I mean, if if only I like that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Know, I love that. Yeah. I mean, if only we could, you know, somehow take this kind of process of of doing something. Right. You have a product at the end here, a book that's a very good book. It's very personal, which comes through in the book. Um, but it's not about that. It wasn't about that. It was about it was about sharing something. And I think in terms of in the legal profession, if we could come from a space of like, I'm sharing in your suffering without suffering myself or like yeah. it's OK to suffer. It's OK to have a tough moment. And in the end, that that drives you professionally. It can do it. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. It's possible instead of this idea that like you know there has to be a monetary attachment or a productivity attachment to what we're doing all the time in a traditional yeah. sense as opposed to flipping and saying like this is what i care about yeah and i want to share this thing i care about and that's then the driving force yeah um, and it definitely is i mean because to be honest i i don't only like really famous authors make money with books. I mean, I'm just gonna be, you know, completely honest about it. And I, even some people ask me like, how's the book doing? And like, 
sometimes I, I'm like, like I take a minute to respond because it's like, why are they asking me this? Because I don't, it's almost like I can't process it because for me, it's like, look, it's already out there and it's going to get to the people that needs to get to. And it's almost like I feel this sense of peace. Like once mm -hmm. it got published, mm -hmm. it was almost like, that's it. You know, like sometimes mm -hmm. I even have to push myself in terms of like, oh my God, I have to promote the book. I have to do, you know, cause, cause I do want, I, I do want to spread the word, but I don't experience it as this, like, oh, like I need to make money with this book. Like I need to push this book to people. No, like, because I, for, for me, the, the important part is that someone reads this book and they feel supported and empowered and validated. And, you know, and there will be other people who are going to, who, who will feel, oh, you know what? Like this made me think to me, that's enough. Like, that's all I need. Mm. And that, and that's a thing that it's hard to quantify because yeah. it can be at, right. Feelings can be abstract, yeah. right. And in, uh, Western culture, particularly the U S we have a penchant, almost a desire to explain every emotion we're feeling yeah like like we yeah. have to over explain and explain again and then clarify <laughs> right and i read a book recently about forest bathing in japan and oh. the jack the japanese they don't culturally have that same desire to like explain every feeling like that's not that like not our, right it's just like you feel it Right. You don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it was like like this morning, for example, you know, I woke up and I was sort of like, I'm not sure if I had a nightmare or what it was, but I was feeling the sense of sadness. Right. Which, again, feeling sadness is a normal human emotion. And there was a moment where I was like, why am I feeling sad? Like I was like psychoanalyzed. Why am I feeling sad? And it's like, oh, there's something wrong. Like, why am I? And for a minute, I was like, no, it's OK. Like, it's okay that I'm having, you know, a not perfect day. It's okay that I'm not having a perfect morning because at the end of the day, it will change because that's the thing about life. We're in constant change. That emotion will change. The thing is like, we get so attached to it and so obsessed to it that we prolong it. But, in, but if you, you know, if you let it flow, it will change to something else. So I think that um, really something that I'm still working on is, is not, overthinking you know those emotions and over explaining those emotions because like i said we are emotional beings so yeah that's what we do i mean so it sets us apart yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways i mean even even with ai which i'm going to spend yeah. like this is the first time i think i've mentioned maybe ai on the <laughs> podcast but yeah. my thought on that is i don't care like i love technology but I could be less caring about AI because AI will never replicate what humans can do. And our brains in this, I think just has to go with, um, we can't actually quite conceptualize how powerful our brains actually are. Like we yeah, can't do it. We, we can't, we can't do it. Like we cannot even conceptualize how everything's interconnected. Like there's so much we don't know. We're like beautifully ignorant of so much of life and the way things work. And 
we are in an attempt to try to explain it all this is what gives us anxiety because we don't have control over so many so many things and so it's just like we have to accept that we just don't know a ton of stuff we don't even know stuff about the own human body that we occupy like you know there's so there's so much and so we just have to accept like you know we're never going to know it all but at the same time we're very powerful like our brains are powerful humans were very powerful and all this technology is just i think uh white white noise quite honestly so well as we i end every podcast with asking the question what do you what do you think it means to be a newfangled lawyer okay i think it means to be an authentic lawyer who's aligned you know um with her purpose and who is courageous enough to change paths and to just really be um, a human being in a legal world that, you know, um, might be too strict and still, you know, be that authentic person, even mm -hmm. though there might be some people who might not agree. What, what would Allie McBeal say about that? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I mean, we'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd I'd be watched, remiss if, if we didn't conclude with a little bit of... If, if I haven't account. watched the show in so long, but I love it. Um, I think she would just like start dancing to Barry White or something. That's there how she would reply. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where we're end. At Newfangled Attorney is Allie McBeal dancing to Barry White. Yes, that's, I love that's it. A that's a beautiful image. So I love last it. Week, this, is, this has been my great joy uh, to have you on um everyone go check out Essie's book i'll promote it for her the emotionally intelligent lawyer it's uh super fun and the cover is uh socrates wearing sunglasses which is which is amazing and so on brand so everyone thank you so much Espy, thank you so much for being here thank you this is where i hit stop record mm -hmm.